Welcome back. Class is in session. As ever, I am your Professor Hamby here with my TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello, Rowan. It's a bit chilly here in the offices, and I'm drinking water because my throat is dry, so I apologize. A little bit of that gets on the audio feed. It has been a crazy last few weeks, but we are continuing with Sandman. It is February. I feel like we should do something for Black History Month. We gotta. Do you have, what do you want to do for Black History Month? What is a topic that you think would be engaging? I feel like it's kind of appropriate to do an X-Men comic. We haven't done that. X-Men comics? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I mean, there certainly have been African-American members of the X-Men. Most notably Storm, Mm -hmm. who betrayed the Wakandan people. Exactly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's some mixed messages there. You know, it becomes messy when your mutant group, which is a metaphor for racism, uh-huh. then betrays the black people um, yeah. for the other, for the metaphor of the black people. I feel like some writing went a little wonky. I mean, basically, the mutants from the 60s and 70s were kind of metaphors for um, blacks in America. Yeah, that's why I threw it up. And then Storm, who is one of the most beloved African characters, not African-American, let's remember she's from Africa, mm-hmm. then betrayed the African Wakandan people for a honky mutant. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a little complicated in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the other most popular black uh, X-Men character, I think, is Bishop. Certainly was in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what we could do is look at some things like the classic graphic novel, uh, God Loves, Man Kills. I haven't heard of that. It is a classic X-Men graphic novel, and if anybody had a doubt that the X-Men and mutant kind were a metaphor for racism, that graphic novel just pounded it straight into people's faces Mm -hmm. so they'd be aware of it. Okay, so maybe we'll do that before the end of the month. That'd be fun. Okay, we are doing the next arc of Sandman, Neil Gaiman's Brief Lives. When you hear Brief Lives, what do you think of? People living for a brief amount of time. But what is brief? Whatever the writer decides. Or maybe what the person decides. We'll have to... This actually comes up fairly early in the story as a theme, and we'll look at it. Now, on our opening pages here... We get these two dramatic islands. They both have very high cliff faces. The plateaus of the islands are well above the waterline. And we see on one of them this domed building that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. When Lady Joanna Constantine returned at the end of Thermidor, the head of Orpheus, to his caretakers. Mm-hmm. And we see now an elder caretaker, caretaker of the line, Andros who goes to pick some flowers and puts them on Lady Constantine's uh, headstone, gravestone. So apparently she was buried on the island Mm -hmm. under circumstances that we don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the aftermath of when she pulled in her favor that Morpheus owed her. We don't know. But we do know that she lived until 1859. So she lived to 99 years old old mm-hmm. which is you know it's i mean it, and it tells us that she had a long life mm-hmm. 
considering that she's a member of the Constantine family, probably not a happy one, because they seem pretty much cursed to cause as much trouble as they suffer. At least if her descendant is any indication. Well, that's what you get for being British in American comics. <laughs> Though written by Brits. True. John Constantine, as well as Lady Constantine here, both written by Brits, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman. True, I did not consider that. And indeed, one of the reasons they were recruited by Karen Berger was she wanted non-American voices. Because mm. she felt like she wasn't hearing new, really original ideas from the American writers. So anyway, as we go on, we see a young man who looks like maybe mixed race, but is of the family line, with a automatic weapon. So they're still taking security pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And we see Orpheus' head, which is all that's left of him, along with his gold earring, sort of sitting out. And we see that Orpheus is so old at this point that he's confusing things. He confuses Andros for one of his ancestors. And he sings, which brings beauty to them. And we see his island and then a house on an island separated by a panel. But mm -hmm. since we could see both of them at the beginning, we know that they're a short distance apart. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to London. Dun, dun, dun. It's raining. It's miserable. The homeless are out. And Delirium is wandering around among the homeless. And she seems confused, uh, which, I mean, she's delirium. Of course she's confused. And then she wanders into a BDSM swingers club. Because, you know, you randomly do that occasionally. Yeah, everyone's experienced that. Right. And I just have to say, of the guy in the lower left, you know, I'm not going to criticize a guy for wearing a waist cincher with a garter belt, but he should shave his legs. I mean, don't you think? I just think it's poor appearance. Fair. Yeah. So Delirium's wandering around and runs into a super goth chick wearing an ankh around her neck and thinks it's Death, her big sister. Which, of course, it's not. Which really throws Delirium. Which shows you how off Delirium is that she can't tell a mortal from an endless. Yeah. But she Delir is quite literally delirious. Mm-hmm. She throws a fit, and Desire shows up, and Desire's androgynous fashion, mm -hmm. and takes Delirium back to, again, I'm going to use her as a convenient uh, pronoun, but really, he, because it's not really that it's transgender or anything else. It, they're an endless, so they're everything. They don't really have genders. But simultaneously, they have all genders. Mm -hmm. They just... They're, they exist. They are all things mm -hmm. of the things they reflect, in this case, humanity. So she is transgender, and she is female, and she is male, and she is asexual, and she is, I mean, everything that desires, she is. Mm -hmm. But because it's mostly presented in a quasi-female androgynous way, I'm going to stick with the she pronoun here, just for convenience, mm -hmm. because that's how I tend to think of desire. Especially because of some stories we'll talk about outside the main Sandman storyline. Mm. So, Delirium is ranting that she wants her big brother, Destruction, back. She misses him. And she travels over to Despair's realm. 
Now, apparently despair and destruction got on very well together. And they had a close relationship. And she tries to enlist despair in seeking out the brother, which despair obviously has mixed feelings about. And then she begins thinking back. And she's thinking back to this time and perhaps the late Middle Ages or early Renaissance. We see Destruction with his big orange-red beard walking around with a feather in his cap. And they're walking through some plague-ridden city. And it's probably the Black Plague. Um, Actually, it is. It's the year 1665. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, plague. It's probably the Black Plague, honestly. Well, and London's had a number of specific plagues. True. So they're talking, and he's very kind to her. But it is shortly after this that he apparently disappeared. Mm. So Despair goes back to talk to Desire, and the issue ends. We move on, and we come back to meet emo boy Morpheus, who's at it again. He walks through the hall... And says, she, she has decided she no longer loves me. And then the sky suddenly just starts pouring rain. Not again. Now remember, Fiddler's Green was sick of their lovey-dovey walks through his fields. So he went off to the soft place. This sort of thing. And Lucian wanders out into the cold rain and goes, uh, What do you want us to do with that suite of rooms you made for her? Erase them. Lucian, one thing. Lord, I would appreciate it if the palace staff would be so kind as to refrain from mentioning her in the future when in my presence. Very good, Lord. And Lucian just walks away with this look on his face of, again. Because this probably is not his first breakup he's had to deal with. So he wanders around to talk to the palace staff and give them the orders, he runs into Nuala, who you may remember as the fairy who was gifted to Morpheus by Queen Titania. Mm -hmm. And Lucian says, you know that necklace you're wearing that she gave you as a gift? You might want to hide it when you're around. Yeah. Yeah, he's a moody bloke. Yeah. Anyway... As the story goes on, we see the rain is causing problems. It's literally flooding the center of the dreaming. Abel's uh, uh, furniture is starting to float. And he's using a ladder to build up a construction to raise up his chair to stay out of the water. Oh, gosh. Which, of course, does not go well. And Goldie is sitting on a shelf fishing in the living room. Fair, honestly. Yeah, I mean, that seems reasonable I may to me. as well take advantage of the situation. A silver lining. And we get a full page dedicated to his moping. <laughs> I mean, Morpheus really needed to use Life Journal, is all I'm saying. Or Tumblr. Honestly, he probably does. Let's be real. Maybe there's a dream equivalent to them? Yeah. So, in the meantime, Delirium has come to visit. And she is picked up by the dragon, and she then gives it a kiss, which which seems to weird it out. (laughs) And so she goes to eat with him. What good timing on her part. (laughs) Right. 
So she and Morpheus eat, and she discusses why she came, which was to enlist Morpheus in seeking destruction. And, of course, he's a moody git about all of it. Because it's Morpheus. Right. They have a long discussion, which I'm not going to go into in detail. But, basically, Morpheus goes to talk to Desire, which, why he would ever bother talking to her is beyond me. Yes, she doesn't seem to have anything useful to do other than cause chaos among her family. And then we get a brief scene of when Delirium was Delight. Mm. And she interacted with Desire. I mean, sorry, with Destruction. And it's a cute scene. And ultimately, Morpheus' decision is he's going to help her look. But his real motivation isn't a desire to help Delirium find their lost brother. In fact, he doesn't intend to do that at all. But he figures, maybe this will help me get over, you know, the chip. Maybe getting out there into the mortal world and doing something will kick me out of my funk. He wants a distraction. Right. The, you know, he's not going to lounge on the couch and binge everything on Netflix and eat cookie dough. He's going to drag himself out into the mortal, mortal world and try to move on. While pretending to help his sister. Which is kind of a dick move if you think about it. Yeah. But they head out. But it wouldn't be Morpheus if he didn't. Right. Now we begin, really, the first page of the real story of Brief Lives. And we meet Bernie Carpax on his way to work. Now I'm just going to read you some of the text for Bernie. Okay. And describe Bernie a little bit. Okay. He appears to be a middle-aged man. He has a short mustache. He's heavily balding. All the way back to just a ring of hair around his head. He's wearing glasses, a conservative blue suit with a white shirt, and a nondescript tie carrying a small briefcase. And we're told, Bernie Capax is on his way to work. He's a lawyer, a junior partner in Colum, Martindale, and Grant. From time to time, he's done other things, but mostly he's been a lawyer of one kind or another. People always need lawyers. He's thinking about a horror movie he saw on TV last night. One of the villains was the Marquis de Sade, depicted as an athletic, debonair psychopath, the embodiment of pure, vicious evil. He's thinking about the Marquis he knew, a pale, little, asthmatic, terribly obese from his years in prison, who started at shadows and wrote obsessively about actions he dared not perform. He's thinking of a dream he had just before waking, which reminds him somehow of something Freud once said to him about how we don't smell anything in dreams. And he's thinking that just isn't true. He's thinking of the woolly mammoths he dreamed of this morning, steam rising from their thick brown coats in the chill of the interminable winter. In his dream, the rank high smell of them hung on the air. And as he walked among these huge beasts, fingers stroking their rough hides, It was the smell of mammoth. He's certain of it. Nothing but smells like that. He hasn't smelled it since he was a child. So, what does this tell us? He's been around a while. Well, in his childhood, he interacted with woolly mammoths, Mm -hmm. which went extinct tens of thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And then as he's walking to work, suddenly an accident happens and a building literally falls down on him. Because of course. And he says, no, no, not all this time, not a stupid accident. And he looks at death and says, but I did okay, didn't I? I mean, I got what, 15,000 years? That's pretty good, isn't it? I lived a pretty long time. And she replies, you got, you lived what anybody gets, Bernie. You got a lifetime. No more, no less. You got a lifetime. So here's this immediate implication that every life is brief. It doesn't matter how long you've lived. Whether you're an infant who dies in the crib, as we saw in The Sound of Her Wings, or you somehow found a way to live 15,000 years. Maybe you're a god that's lived a million years. It's all brief lives. It's never enough. Mm. So Morpheus and Delirium start discussing how they're going to travel around. So, I mean, when you need to start moving around, what do you think of doing? What, what logistical steps would you take to, I don't know, equip yourself for transport. For transport? Right. I mean, you need a vehicle, right? Yeah, maybe get a bike, maybe get a car, maybe get bus tickets. What if you have to travel all over the world? Well, you know, when I do it, I call up old Mesopotamian gods who've become travel agents. Of course. And apparently Morpheus thinks like I do. So <laughs> So they go to the Feral Travel Agency. Feral? F-A-R-R-E-L-L, which is an old Middle Eastern god. And he has modernized. He was a god of travel back in his days, and he, people don't believe in him anymore. But he maneuvered himself, so he's still alive and still powerful in the mortal world, just in a different way. And the poor receptionist. Delirium is just a nightmare for every receptionist in the world. Yeah. Meanwhile, Farrell is rich and powerful and arranges things for the rich and powerful. And you don't get much more powerful than the endless, of yeah. course. Which are the definition of powerful. Exactly. So, one of the things that Farrell asks him is, so, you'll just be staying on Earth then? You don't need to go off-planet or to another plane of existence? And when Morpheus says, yeah, he says, well, that's simple and straightforward then. <laughs> yeah, so simple and straightforward. Right. Meanwhile, we encounter a woman who discovers that something very bad is happening in her apartment. And she barely gets away before the whole place just blows up. Huh. And she's left in her night clothes on the streets with the purse she grabbed, going to find clothes. Sounds like a good first action. So that and a building falling. Something's up, right? Yeah. Also, talk about surviving on gut instinct. So we now switch. And what do we see? You tell me. A painter on a lakeside? Maybe a lake? 
May we're not sure, uh, but a body of water uh, of some yeah, kind. Yeah, body of water with a tree and pathing, and he's painting, and he has his hair tied up. He's ginger. Does he look like anybody familiar? Yeah, he. I was, I was about to say when I the reason I paused is because I had a look at him. And I was like, that looks like our flashback of destruction. Right, and it is. Oh, and he's, he's a duck. And he's trying to paint, and he's talking to his dog, and the dog is pointing out that the painting is awful because <laughs> Barnabas talks. And I, I love that they have this conversation. Barnabas says, listen, there's something happening in that room around the back. I can't hear it. Well, you aren't a dog, are you? Not at present, no. <laughs> but again, the endless are all things. Mm-hmm. So he opens the door and we see his sigil gallery. He took his sigil gallery with him to contact his siblings in case he needed to. And there's a pool of water that is making motions. And when Barnabas asks, asks what it is, Destruction says, I suppose you could call it an early warning system. Wow, everyone apparently has warning systems, except for the guy who lived 15,000 years. Well, he just was long-lived, but not a wizard or anything. True. Also, he just chose to cut off his whole family. What do you mean? So he's Destruction? In- yeah. Yeah. And for the first time, we see his sigil, too, which is a sword. Yeah, makes sense if it's yeah. destruction. So now we get to see Morpheus and Delirium on a plane flight. With just, like, normal-looking people. I think they're just on a normal plane flight. Yeah, they just got... Farrell just booked them tickets. I don't see how they couldn't have done that themselves. Well, I mean, they're the endless. They don't have money and stuff. True. So there's an exchange here I love. There's a little blonde girl here. And she uh, fell asleep and was telling her mother she had a dream and the mother's dismissing it. And after the mother leaves to go to the bathroom, Morpheus says, Child, huh? Your mother was wrong. You can indeed become lost in dreams and you may not always find yourself when you wake up. Oh, my name's Chloe Russell. I know. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, wow, Dream, how to stay... I can't think of the word. Anyway, there's more there. But she continues to talk to Dream after they land. Mm-hmm. And he exchanges words with her. And we get to see a little bit of her at the very end of the storyline. And for... Sometimes when you read things, characters stick with you. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this little kid has always stuck with me since I first read this. Mm. And wish they had done something with her later on. Mm-hmm. Like, what happens to a little kid who gets exposed to the truth of things by the Lord of Dreams? Yeah, why didn't they touch on that? I don't know. But it, it's the last substantial thing we see of her here. Mm-hmm. And she's not picked up in later stories. Mm. But... I've sometimes thought about writing a story where I include her as a character, of course, with no references to any of this as an homage. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they land, and they go hook up with the driver that Farrell has sent mm-hmm. in this classic, beautiful car. Look at this. Wow. It is gorgeous. It's amazing. And the driver takes them on. Now, at the beginning of the next story, we meet the alderman. 
The alderman looks like he's maybe of some uh, First Nation or Indigenous people up north Mm -hmm. in Canada. Uh, Not Inuit, I think, you know, not that far north. And he takes off all of his clothes. He basically says he can feel something coming. And the spirit traps he laid to stop evil magic have been torn apart. So he strips his clothes off, pees in a circle, and turns into a bear. Then he cuts off his own shadow and turns it into a man to dress and go out as him. And then abandons his mind into the bear mind so that whatever is coming for him that he can't stop will kill the human part there and leave his spirit alone. What the fuck? That seems perfectly straightforward to me. Are you having trouble following it? Do you need a flow chart for, you know, First Nation ma- tribal magics? No, sorry, you just... Sorry, my, my brain got a little lost when you said pissed and then turned into a bear. Well, I mean, sometimes you got to create a magic circle, and you got piss in you, so you use it. I mean, do you need a spark notes for shamans? Maybe. All right. Oh, oh, not spark notes. A new demi course. Oh, there we go. <laughs> New demi-course in shamanic magic. We'll, okay. we'll sign you up for that next semester for uh, free credits. How's that? Sounds good. I apparently need it. So meanwhile, Morpheus and Delirium have shown up at a house. Guess whose house? Bernie Capex. They can't leave this guy alone. Whose son obviously is not doing well. Um... He's like, yeah, my dad's dead. We're having a funeral for him. By the way, did you know him? Yes, we did. It's like, do you know what I found? Look at these. Gold cougarans. 200 of them. I went through this filing cabinet down here. There, he has like 20 passports in different languages. There's bags of cocaine. There's guns, knives. I don't know. Do I call the ATF, the IRS, the FBI, Interpol? There's a Picasso in here, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I don't think your dad was who you think he was. Now, with all this wealth, look at what is on the wall framed. It's a picture a little kid drew that says, My dad is a lawyer with a picture of Bernie. Holy shit, that's why! Why does he have cocaine, though? Who knows? Look, the guy was 15,000 years old. He didn't give a shit about society's definitions of anything. True. I mean, look. I, At least he cared enough to hang his son's painting. I mean, and clearly loved his son. Mm-hmm. You know, just because he was 15,000 years old didn't mean he didn't love his family. Mm-hmm. E- even if he'd lost families over the years, which I'm sure he did. Mm-hmm. So they get back in the car and they keep moving. They try to reach out in some mystic way to the alderman and find out he's unreachable. Because, you know, he cut off his shadow and wandered off as a bear. Yeah. And How they're... convenient for the rest of us. Well, he didn't want to die. I don't blame him for that. <laughs> and then they all go to their own separate rooms. <laughs> we get to find out more about the woman who's driving them. And Morpheus wanders back to check on things in the dreaming. And says... You know, something doesn't seem right about what's going on. And then he starts having a memory. And his mind flashes back 
to what we find out is probably the last time he saw destruction before destruction abandoned the family. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's perhaps early Renaissance. Yeah, that sounds about right. So they meet up and Morpheus introduces destruction to the Corinthian. And at this point, the Corinthian is brand new and has never been in the mortal world before. Things got to start somewhere. Morpheus has a jewel stolen by a mortal. He retrieves it. It's an actual mortal from history that you can read about who got hung for, oh. for high, being a highwayman. And as they talk, Destruction says, times are changing, my brother. And he takes Morpheus to a college. And he says they are using reason as a tool here. Reason. There is no more reliable a tool than instinct, myth, or dream. But it has the potential to be far more dangerous for them, this reason. They are exploring, creating, defining, and dissecting. And we see a doctor uh, who's obviously studying physiology. And he's dissecting an orangutan. Mm. And identifying how it's similar to a human physiology. And this is, of course, the time in history when people are beginning to question and go, could we be related yeah. to these creatures? And the doctor leaves the room and Destruction and Dream continue to have a conversation. And Destruction talks about Isaac Newton splitting light through a prism and the study of optics. And dream, more Destruction says... Are not light and gross bodies incontrovertible? And Destruction says he has already posed that question, although at present it is but an idle notion, and I doubt he will return to it. It is too many other things to occupy his mind. And Dream just kind of goes, so what? Meanwhile, we see the Corinthian cutting out the orangutan's eyes to eat them. Gross. But the Corinthian was the Corinthian. Now, Destruction says the relationship between matter and light, the transformation of one to the other. I have been here before. After a while, certain ideas become inevitable. Now, he's implying multiple things. One, of course, is that this has happened in other places, other worlds, and they've seen it happen. Now, do you know what he means about the relationship between matter and light, the transformation one to the other? It's not ringing any bells to me. Have you ever seen the formula E equals MC squared? Oh, yes. That is the mathematical formula that defines the relationship between energy and matter. That Mm. is what he's talking about. Mm. Energy equals the speed of light squared times matter. Mm. So that's how much energy you can get if you converted matter into pure energy. Mm. That is also known as a fundamental concept behind... Atomic fission. So what destruction is talking about is humanity is now a short jump in terms, and a few hundred years is very short by their standards, Mm -hmm. of going from where they are now to the destructive potential of atomics. Yeah. And that is what Dream refers to when he says, This is your territory, brother, not mine. So they begin to reorganize their lives on principles of reason. Well, what of that? It does not affect my domain. 
and it will do little to yours that will not change once more. So they have this exchange, and Destruction says, you're right, it's happened before, and I know what's going to happen this time. The Big Bang, the loud explosions, it all just goes on and on and on. And it seems to bore him. Then the memories stop as firemen break in and find Morpheus just standing there in the flame. And Morpheus is like, oh, hi, didn't see you there. Turns out their driver is dead in the fire. Oh, no. So apartments exploded, buildings falling. A fire. A fire. Um, You know. Shit's not going well for them. So when Delirium finds out that Ruby's dead, she says, that means I get to drive. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if I trust Morpheus behind a wheel. I don't trust either of these two behind a wheel. No. Oddly enough, I think the only one who I would trust behind a wheel is Death. That's fair. Well, and Destiny. Because he knows where the accidents are going to happen. True, true. Only two I would trust. Despair? Nope. No. Desire? I wouldn't trust Desire with a blank piece of paper. Same. I mean, no. And more I wouldn't is- trust I wouldn't trust Desire with an inch square of a soft cloth. Yeah. So now we see this woman in a white t-shirt and jeans and long brown hair going to check on somebody who looks seriously stressed out. Mm-hmm. The now I will admit when I first saw this panel many many years ago I went is it Barbie? I thought it was maybe the girl from earlier who we saw running out. But it's not. But we do find out almost immediately that her name is Tiffany, and the girl coming to visit is Ishtar. Ishtar is worried about Tiffany, and so brought her some food to make her some good healthy food. But Tiffany is not doing well, and she's sick. Meanwhile. They have this weird discussion in the course of the story about these old Babylonian religions where prostitutes were priestesses. And Tiffany apparently has a degree in women's studies and lectures Ishtar on it. While Ishtar just kind of basically goes, "Uh, you got some of the details wrong. Huh. Ishtar is the goddess Ishtar. And she is now left in the mortal world working as a stripper. Which is related to what she used to do. And she is kind of taking care of Tiffany because Tiffany is essentially what would have been one of her worshippers back in ancient Babylonia. Mm. Meanwhile, we also have a woman who has a degree in women's studies working as a stripper. There's a certain irony there. This irony is lost on the people to whom delirium is an absolute danger to on the road. Yep. That's why I said this was a bad idea. And they must be pulled over, aren't they? There's a cop chasing them. She does eventually pull over. And the cop is pissed. And so delirium makes him feel like bugs are all over his body. She's not very nice to him. She's a menace. She is a menace. In the meantime... Morpheus is not really concerned about what happens here. Because why would he? And he goes to Eve's cave to say, Okay, Matthew, I want you to join me in the waking world. There's some stuff going on. 
when you need the raven to babysit you, too. Right. So, Ishtar and Tiffany go to work. And Matthew, who actually was a human who drove, is trying to teach Delirium how to drive. The most important driver's lesson I think he's ever given. <laughs> Meanwhile, look at the car. It's morphed. I mean, remember, it was that nice classic sort of 1930s era uh-huh. style Bentley before. Uh-huh. Now it's got drag racing pipes out the back. Uh-huh. It's become elongated. I mean, Delirium's like going hell for leather here. Uh-huh. If I didn't know better, I thought they were trying to bring death over here. Meanwhile, Delirium's like, which way's the right? And Matthew's like, over there! Those lines! Over there! Those lanes! Don't shout, I can hear you perfectly. Are you sure? Oh. So, we get to Suffragette City, the strip bar. Suffragette City. Uh, uh, uh. I don't know why a strip club is named after women's right to vote. Yeah. <laughs> Poor I, marketing. I think Gaiman was having fun with this. I think the he was The irony too. is huge. Mm-hmm. Now, we only find out if you look up there in the corner and you're paying attention to the art with the name of the place is. I would have not noticed that, to be honest. Right. So, we do find out a little bit from Ishtar about how this working as a stripper keeps her alive. The worship of the men Mm. is still like the worship of the men in ancient Babylon. Mm. And it still feeds that divine part of her, just on not so much scale. They go to visit Ishtar, and when she first sees Dream, she's not happy, because all gods are scared of Dream. Mm. Because remember, gods begin in Dream's realm. Mm Mm-hmm. They begin out of the dreams of men. That's what makes the Endless different from gods. The Endless exists regardless of any kind of worship or mortal attention. Meanwhile, the gods need it. Right. And the gods are born in dreams and then return to dreams to die before going somewhere else. So they get kind of nervous when he shows up. Right. Now, the Endless are reflections of humanity, so they can't outright kill a god who's actively worshipped, they'd come back again. But Ishtar's not really in that position. Yeah. And we find out that Ishtar used to have a relationship with destruction. Oh. Remember, they're still on a quest to find him. So, of course, you go to the people who knew him. Right. But it turns out she has no idea where he is. Mm. And it turns out that Dream was responsible for them breaking up. Uh Uh-oh, because of course he was. And he apologizes for it. Character development. Character development. There's more to come. Meanwhile, as things go on, Ishtar goes back out on stage, and she does something she has not done for a very long time. She cuts loose. She releases her divinity. She drinks in all the worship of the people and doesn't stop. And I love the art right here. Mm -hmm. But it ends in a detonation. So many explosions. And Ishtar is now dead. Mm. Notice a lot of big destructive events. Mm. 
-hmm. killing off people mm -hmm. who knew destruction and might possibly know where he is. Oh, it's almost like someone's trying to get rid of the trail. And we find out that early warning system is what's doing it, and destruction can't actually stop it. He put it in place before he abandoned his power and his office. And now to stop it, he'd have to take it back up again, which he's not willing to do. Hmm. Wait, poor Tiffany now. Now she's... She managed to survive. She's the only survivor. When the god doesn't survive, but you do. The god presumably did something to protect her. And Desire shows up in one of the rare non-dickish moments of Desire's appearances in all of Gaiman's works, gives her a jacket. Aww. But I... Desire was drawn from feeling this powerful event related to the emotion. I guess they have a soft spot for strippers. I guess. And we return to Destruction. Would you like to describe what Destruction is doing? Good fucking question. Is he well, he's writing, writing something, clearly. He's sitting with Barnabas the dog. And yes, he is trying to write a poem. Okay, I can't read the words, so I didn't know. But... He finishes and says, Are you ready for this, Barnabas? As I'll ever be. <clears throat> I call this Basilisk and Cockatrice a moral poem. Okay. I dreamed I saw a basilisk that basked upon a rocky shore. I looked upon the basilisk. With eyes of stone, I looked no more. I dreamed I saw a cockatrice, a chewing on a piece of bone. I gazed upon the cockatrice. One cannot ga gaze with eyes of stone. Mm. To look upon a basilisk is really never worth the risk. To gaze upon a cockatrice is permanent and never nice. For it can never be denied life isn't pleasant. <laughs> Petrified. Is that it? It is indeed. Well, at least it wasn't long. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he's trying to do other stuff than be an endless. Well, he's painting and he's writing poetry. He's trying he's... to create, not destroy. Exactly. He's trying to be the opposite of what he is. He's trying to grow and trying to be move beyond. Well, we can see they can kind of change like we saw with Delirium because she was originally, um... Uh, Delight. Uh -huh. But there's an interesting question. Is she flipped over to the opposite? Or was she always... Or is it just another aspect of the same? Because mm. there's a difference between being related and opposite. The, dif the opposite of Delight, of course, is despair. But within her own nature, is delight the opposite of delight? I We could debate this question. And I think it would be a very long debate. Mm -hmm. But at this point, Morpheus says, I'm out. And just bails on delight. Who Major dick move. Yeah. Come on, your sister. He's like, I'm tired of this. And he shows back up in the dreaming where Nuala is dancing around singing and says... Stop that. He's during his breakup. He doesn't want to see anything nice. Right. But something's bothering Dream. And he decides he does want to know where destruction is. This whole farce of a road trip is over. Mm -hmm. But he wants to know. Now remember, 
back in Season of Miss, Bast said she would trade for hell the knowledge of where destruction was. Oh, I forgot about that. So destruction goes to visit her and finds out the truth that she didn't know. Because she's Bast. She lied hoping to figure something out. So he moves on and he runs into the jack-o'-lantern mm-hmm. and has a conversation with Lucian. And Lucian says, look, I think you need to know something. In your sigil gallery, the portrait for delirium went black this morning. Oh, shit. And so Morpheus is like, okay, I'm going to talk to Death about this. So he calls Death and she shows up and she starts to have a conversation with Lucian and ignores Morpheus. And eventually Morpheus gets annoyed with her ignoring what he says to her and basically says, I'm not talking to you. I'm pissed at you. What did you do to Delirium? I beg your pardon? What have you done to her? She's closed off her realm. You've seen her sigil. It's black. What did you do? I did nothing to her. Dream? I merely curtailed our journeyings. And basically, Death again plays Big Sister, chews him out, and tells him to pull on his big girl panties and act like an adult. (laughs) You know, for someone, you know, five billion years old, he acts awfully childish. Uh Uh-huh. So, eventually, he agrees to do the right thing, and she gives him a kiss on the cheek. And he goes into Delirium's realm, which he's powerful enough he can do regardless of her consent. Oh, so the, he... the lesser endless could not enter, say, Dream or Death's realm without their consent. But the lesser endless, like Desire, dr- Delirium, uh, Despair... The more powerful endless can enter regardless. With with death and dream being very powerful. Yeah. And basically he has a long discussion with Delirium and says, I was wrong. We need to finish this. And she goes, okay, let's do it properly this time. And we now see destruction again. And he went to the village to get provisions, and he's going to make dinner. Mm. It's probably not going to taste good. Probably not. We also see a sculpture he's worked on outside. It's not very good. There's resemblance of a person. He's trying to be a creator, Mm -hmm. but it is against his nature, and he's not very good at it. Uh But you know what? Barnabas is a dog. He'll probably eat it anyways. Yep, exactly. And Barnabas mocks him, which I will save it for people to read on their own. But I love Barnabas. Who can't love Barnabas? Exactly. So Dream says, okay, we need to summon entities who can tell us where family of the endless are. Because the family of the endless, like like destruction, follow different rules than others. So they go to a fun house, a maze at a carnival. Mm. 
and they walk the maze, and then it becomes a different maze, and then a different maze, and a different maze, and they do this whole metaphorical maze walking until they end up in Destiny's garden and his hedge maze. Because Destiny is Destiny, yeah. so he probably knows. And down here we see a vision wandering in the garden of her when she was Delight, Delirium when she was Delight. And we actually get to see that in a later story. Oh. Outside the regular continuity of Sandman in one of the anthology collections. Mm. Now, we wander on and we get to see the Idlis as giant statues. And Destiny basically says, I can't help you. It's not written in the book. I can't help you and I can't tell you what's going to happen. And basically their exchange is, Destiny says, look, you know that oracles can't tell you where destruction is. Oracles can't speak of the endless. Mm. Unless they're of the family. And Destiny says... You thought of one when you spoke to the cat goddess, did you not? There is an oracle who is of the family. And Dream says nothing, but basically his face goes, Oh, fuck. So Delight wander, Delirium wanders in. Dream, what's he saying? What did you tell him? That is his affair, not yours. And then she rips into him. Do you know why I stopped being Delight, my brother? I do. There are things not in your book. There are paths outside of this garden. You would be well to remember that. It is refreshing to see you so collected. Stick it. Coins have two sides. Destruction told us that when he told us he was leaving. But I already knew it. You did too. So this is the other side. Destruction is interested in the other side of the coin. And creation. But we're going to talk about that when this story is over, because there are things happening here that I think very few people have ever picked up on, and people miss. Now, a lot of people think that this whole discussion of two sides of the coin is at once simplistic and very mysterious. I don't think it's mysterious at all. And we'll discuss why. So we go back and we get a short view of when destruction, uh, gathered the family together and said he was leaving. Oh, so, so at least he told people he was GPSing them. Yep. And we now see that, well, I mean, you tell me, what do we see here? They're on, they're on the mountain, the other, uh, mountain. The island. Yeah. The, the, the island, high sorry. island plateau of Orpheus. Yeah, he's, he's on the opposite one to the one we saw that Destruction's on. So you think Destruction's on the other island? Yeah, because it's the only time we've seen who, like, fall islands in the... Good observation. Issue. A lot of people miss that at first. Really? Yep. Hmm. But he does But look, this is Morpheus and Delirium. They have no idea that who they're looking for is just over there. They're going to visit Orpheus. <laughs> Because Orpheus is the oracle of the family. So he can determine where destruction is. But remember, 
Morpheus created a rule that he would never see his son again. Well, here we are. So he's going to break that rule. And they deal with the mortals as they have to. He goes in to talk to Orpheus. And he makes a deal with Orpheus. And basically, Orpheus just says, Okay, you have to make a deal to do what I want. And if you do, I'll tell you where destruction is. Okay, I'll do it. All right. He's right there. Well, that's what it gets from You could spit over there if you were tall enough. The alderman could probably piss to that island from here. Well, I guess that's what he gets for not paying child So they literally just get in a, ri- a dingy little crappy or boat and in minutes row over there. Even an hour. An hour? That was like three <laughs> minutes. So they wander up. Barnabas. And they run into Barnabas. And Destruction greets them. He knew they were coming. And so he made a meal for them. Oh, so that's what all the the like stuff on the table was for. Yep, he was cooking for his family coming to visit. Because he knows they're coming even when they don't give him a call. Well, well, actually, they kind of did. They kind of tried. I mean, <laughs> if he would answer his sigil, I mean, right? True. But he chose not to. So they sit down, and they, of course, have that awkward family meeting that families will have, right? Uh-huh. And it turns out the endless are just as dysfunctional as any other family that have grown apart. Mm-hmm. And Barnabas makes a few snarky comments. And delir- delirium blathers, with her hair changing color, shrinking, growing, doing all that stuff that it will do. And Morpheus says, you abandoned your responsibilities. Destruction says, so you said, 300 years ago. And so they're just rehashing the same old, same old. And in the end, basically the decision is, Destruction says, no, I'm not coming back. I'm not taking up my duties. Destruction still happens, just without my direction. And I'm done with it. And he says, but I thought you weren't talking to Orpheus. You found out where I am from him. And he basically says, well, it's good. It's good that you're willing to change. And he does this whole shtick about the two sides of the coin anymore. He says, because there's no such thing as a one-sided coin, because there are two sides to every sky. Destruction did not cease with my abandonment of my realm. No more than people would cease to dream should you abandon yours. Perhaps it's more uncontrolled, wilder, perhaps not. But it's no longer anyone's responsibility. I took my sigil with me. I did not pass it on. So there's no new destruction coming. As this universe came into being, destiny came with it, alone in the darkness. Before the first living thing came into existence, our sister was there waiting. Morpheus, sorry. I was going to say, we actually saw what happened when Morpheus didn't take care of his realm. Shit Ah, went down. That's going to become very important. Very important in our discussion about this. Morpheus says, And when the first living thing awoke to life, I was also there. You tell me nothing new. I'm trying, my brother. 
It was getting you to listen to anything new that I always had problems with. Let's go outside into the garden. It's a warm night after all. And we have this great two-page spread with this giant sky taking up almost all the art mm -hmm. in space. It's gorgeous. And he's... And destruction continues to lecture to Morpheus. I like the stars. It's the illusion of permanence, I think. I mean, they're always flaring up and caving in and going out. But from here, I can pretend. I can pretend that things last. I can pretend that lives last longer than moments. See, and here we get that implication that even stars have brief lives. Mm -hmm. Which to him, they do. Gods come and gods go, mortals flicker and flash and fade, worlds don't last, and stars and galaxies are transient, fleeting things that twinkle like fireflies and vanish into cold and dust. But I can pretend. And they keep talking, and we find out that early in his existence he had a talk with death and said that she he felt insignificant. And she tried to talk him through it. And make it more bearable. And in the end, nothing is really resolved in their conversation. Because they're talking with family. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is what friends are for. And Morpheus is like, will you return? And he's like, no. Delirium. I thought you would. I'm sorry, Lassie. Morpheus says, but you are endless. We have responsibilities. And he just says he wants... To find the other side of the sky. So in the end, he packs his stuff up and takes his sigil with him, shakes Morpheus's hand, gives Delirium a hug, tells Barnabas that he can't take Barnabas with him because um, where he's going, Barnabas can't follow. And so he Barnabas chooses to stay with Delirium. And interesting time he's he's gonna have. Destruction says, "Be good. Look after her. You'll miss the poetry readings, the paintings, the late night flamenco guitar recitals." Barnabas replies, "That's right. Go on. Make me feel better that I won't have to listen to that crap again." Given the fact he's staying with delirium, he might actually. All right. And destruction literally walks off into the sky. Damn. And Delirium says, well, what are you going to do now? And Morpheus says, I have to go kill my son. This family is so dysfunctional. Well, Orpheus was cursed for immortality. And only an endless can kill him now. And that's what he's wanted for his father to end his existence. And Morpheus has always been afraid that he would grant that. Because he can't stand to see his son in pain. Mm -hmm. And that's why he said he would never see him again. So Morpheus did what Morpheus does best. Ignore the problem. Well, it's more complicated than that. And as we'll see. So Morpheus does in fact kill Orpheus. And leaves the body uh, with instructions to be buried. There's discussion among the endless. And Desire gets what she wants. Remember she said she'd bring the kindly ones down upon Orpheus? I mean, Morpheus, by making him spill family blood? Well, he now has. Shit. 
So what Orpheus didn't understand is that by killing him, Morpheus will now be destroyed. The kindly ones will come to destroy him. That's not good. The one thing that can destroy the Endless. Morpheus goes into the palace. He sees Nuala with the necklace that the ex gave him, gave her. And he says, Nuala, that pendant around your neck, I've seen it before, have I not? Yes. Ah, well, keep it where it is, no matter. Perhaps my journeyings have indeed accomplished one thing. Do not trouble yourself, little one. Go in peace. Character development. But, okay, so at the end of it, people are like, oh, he's still stuffy and kind of a jerk. But notice here his hands. We don't get to see his hands, do we? They're stuck in his jacket. Mm -hmm. So while some of the people in the palace are like, yeah, great, Morpheus is still being stuck up. What we see is when he goes into his chambers, he takes the jacket off and his hands all the way up to his elbows are covered in blood. And he washes them. And he just stares in the bowl with Orpheus's blood remembering their last exchange. And cries to himself. We see the aftermath, the homeless woman at the beginning of the story, Chloe Russell, Bernie Kapax's son, the state trooper who's still institutionalized. Because no one's going to believe him. Well, and he still feels the bugs all over him. Oh, he d- oh no. Wow. Man, He's strapped down to a bed. Tiffany is now on talk shows, and we see Desire, and she has accomplished her goal. She has made Morpheus spill family blood, and so the kindly ones will be brought down upon him. Now, let's go back to the themes of duty Mm -hmm. and change. Here is something that I think people do not comprehend heavily when they read this. And I see this when they discuss this. Morpheus does has historically not changed. That's true. Mm-hmm. But what is Morpheus known for, aside from being emo, <laughs> as the Lord of Dreams? Yeah. His rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Now, I've avoided talking about this in the past. But, I mean, he's known for that, right? Yeah. I mean, people have... Lucian has said his nature is to make rules. It seems like he's always making rules. But it's not his nature to. His nature is actually chaos. Dreams are chaos. Right? So where does the rulemaking come from? The rulemaking is that while destruction is lecturing Morpheus about the other side of the coin, Morpheus has been using the other side of the coin his entire existence. Mm-hmm. Morph, his nature is chaos, and yet he embraces, as part of his responsibilities, rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Destruction is an idiot. Mm-hmm. Morpheus knows everything that Destruction is prattling about. And while Destruction says that Morpheus isn't listening to him, he's not listening to Morpheus. Mm -hmm. Those rules of Morpheus are to save lives and protect people. He may be an emo, emo git, but he is essentially 
one of the kindest entities in existence in a way. Because we see what happens when he doesn't take his responsibilities. Right. People die. People don't wake Worlds up. die. We have not gotten to see it. We will see it in a sequel series called Overture. But the thing that led him to saying that he could not let things alone with Rose, the amulet, was because he had done that before, and what he thought was mercy led to a world dying. A whole world. And he was only captured for was realistically a very brief amount of time. 80 or so years. Which to us is a lot, but for the entire world of existence may as well be a blink in the eye. Right. And hundreds of people died. Which is, let's keep in mind, that is what destruction has done. Not given up the sigil, but abandoned responsibilities. Now, Dream did not abandon them. He was cut off from being able to perform them. But we don't know what could have happened if Destruction had kept up his duties. Mm -hmm. But over 300 years, what might have been better? I mean, could he have eased people into atomic power better? Could Mm -hmm. we have avoided, potentially, the world wars? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an open question. Because for all we know, he's kind of what caused W1 and 2. Well, no, people did. Humans caused that. Mm-hmm. But but if he had been doing his job, could he have managed it and manipulated things to not be so brutal, so horrible? Mm-hmm. And th- so this whole time that people talk about this great mystery and what's the other side of the coin, and people ask, how does it refer to Morpheus? That's Neil a- Gaiman has told us the whole run of the series. That's a mystery to people? I know. That makes sense. Right. You only really have to think about it for a little bit. Morpheus has known the other side of his coin from the very beginning and used it. And now he has broken a rule. And what is chaos without rules? Constant shifting and change. Mm -hmm. Which is the nature of dreams. And now that he's broken a rule, he's going to die. He has to keep his rules to stay consistent. Mm -hmm. Will another dream take care of the mortal races to the degree that he has? Will they care less? We don't know. Maybe this next one won't be an insufferable emo bit. We don't know. It'd be worse. So... I mean, there's an irony here that, you know, people think there's this big mystery and think that, oh, well, what is the other side of the coin for Morpheus? We've been shown it the whole series. But Morpheus has embraced the other side of the coin without abandoning his responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Perfect balance. Right. And he has personal flaws, but destruction's just an immature git. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I, I think it's an interesting series in that regard. Mm. Now, next time, we are going to indulge in doing a single issue of Sandman. Ooh. My personal favorite single issue, Ramadan. Art by Ooh. P. Craig Russell. Beautiful. It is just absolutely gorgeous art. And I look fun forward to it. I try to keep this mostly focused 
on, you know, valid literary topics. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to indulge myself in a personal favorite uh, nerd out Mm -hmm. over Sandman next time. Mm -hmm. All right. Class is no longer in session. Okay, class is dismissed, but you are not. I have a quick info dump for you. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, we are available everywhere. We are on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, even on YouTube. Additionally, you can find me on social media, on Mastodon, Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok. I probably have a copy of the podcast on an iPod mini in a hobo's pocket in San Francisco. That's right, time travel. Do you want to know where you can find all these links? You can find them on my link tree. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. It is the comics course. And don't forget your homework.